We are going to be looking at uh, the end of Matthew 20. Now, this is Palm Sunday, and usually uh, what happens in churches is that you look at a, a passage in the Gospels that has to do with Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. But I'm an odd duck, and so I said, why don't we look at the passage immediately before Jesus makes his triumphal entry into the city? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to be in Matthew 20, uh, starting at verse 20. Uh, but before I read the text for us, um, let me let you in and just into a little window into to my upbringing. Uh, my siblings and I, we grew up in, in the Memphis, Tennessee area, and we were oddities in our home church, uh, which is par for the course because I'm kind of an oddity in this church too. Um, but we were oddities. We went to a pretty wealthy church. It was upper middle class, upper class church. Um, most of the kids in the youth group were wealthy. Uh, most were suburbanites. Most went to very, very expensive private schools. And we were on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, we were uh, those that lived in the country. We were poor. And we were homeschooled. Uh, and so you combine that awkwardness with the awkwardness of being a young teenager trying to fit in. And it was very, very difficult. I found it difficult. My sister especially found it difficult. Um, a lot of the kids, most of the kids in our youth group, uh, had picked an SEC school to go to for college. And they pulled for the, the sports teams, especially the football teams, all throughout junior high and high school. And uh, among the, the, the ladies of the youth group, Auburn was a popular choice. Um, yeah, War Eagle. Um, or is it Plainsmen or Tigers? Can't make up your minds, I guess. Um, uh, my sister uh, didn't even know where Auburn was. Um, she didn't know what the mascots were. She didn't like football. She was never going to go to Auburn. And yet she bought an Auburn sweatshirt to wear at the youth group to fit in with all the other girls. She thought that is what is going to help me fit into this crowd, but she didn't. She walked in uh, one evening, a Wednesday evening, and she was mocked for the shoes that she was wearing. She was wearing what I think are pretty cool shoes, some Chuck Taylors. But in 1993, Timberlands were all the rage. But we were poor, and so uh, she didn't have money to buy those shoes. So she went to Walmart, as country folk do that are poor, and she bought some knockoff hiking boots. And that didn't work either. The kids in that group, uh, they had significant trust funds. The size of their homes were significant. To, to fit into, to be part of their little community was a significant thing. And that's all we ever wanted. That's what my sister wanted. She just wanted to feel significant. But whether you're a 13-year-old girl or whether you're an 85-year-old grown man, you have that desire to, to feel significant, to do things that are significant. That's actually not a bad desire. Um, that's not a bad desire at all. We're actually wired that way because the Bible says that God made you significant. It says that he created you in his own image. Psalm 8 says that he crowned you with glory and honor and gave you dominion and purpose. That means that you're significant. So the problem as we think about significance is not the desire to experience greatness and glory. It's actually how we believe significance is typically achieved. So we're going to look at the search for significance this evening and then where we actually 
uh, find significant. So let me pray for us, and then I'll read the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have uh, chosen to gather with us by your Spirit. And we pray now that you would fill our minds and our hearts, uh, that our hearts would be open to you and your word and you alone. Uh, would you clear all of the junk out of our minds and our hearts so that we may worship you in spirit and truth as we receive your word. Uh, we pray this all for Christ's sake. Amen. This is Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Uh, Ray Kinsella was a poor, uh, very substandard Iowa corn farmer who was on the verge of losing his, his home and his farm to bankruptcy. One evening, his family was swinging on the front porch, drinking some iced tea, and he decided to take a walk through the cornfield when he started to hear voices. If you've seen the movie Field of Dreams, you know what voice he heard. If you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. He started to hear this over and over again. And then um, he started to, to get prophetic visions about what the it was that he was to build. He realized the it is to build a baseball field here in the middle of my field. And much to the dismay of other non-believers, uh, Ray, uh, despite needing a good harvest, took out a few acres of his corn, mowed it down, and sunk a bunch of money into building a baseball field that the voices in his head told him to build. Well, it worked. Uh, one day, if you've seen the film, out of the outfield through the corn comes the ghost of Shoeless Joe Jackson, a famous White Sox baseball player with other uh, famous baseball players. And he thought, this is it. They started to, to play baseball. All of these great Hall of Famers. 
And he said, this is going to save the farm. We're going to, you know, we're going to be able to, to live now and survive. And he said, others have to see this. People are going to come from all over to see this. So he travels across country and goes and gets James Earl Jones, uh, a sports writer uh, named uh, Terrence Mann. And he brings him back to Iowa to witness this and to write about it. And as they're sitting there one evening watching this this game of these uh, ghosts of these famous players play ball as they're wrapping up their game and, and about to drift away into the cornfield. Shoeless Joe Jackson turns around to them and says, do you want to come with us? And Ray Kinsella is thinking, oh, my goodness, this is awesome. This is what I've longed for. I don't know what's out in the cornfield. Does it mean death? Does it mean heaven? I at least know it's magical. And Sheila's Joe says, no, 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 not you, Ray, Terrence. And this is the interaction that Ray and Sheila's Joe have. Ray says, but I want to know what's out there. I want to see it. But you're not invited, Ray. Not invited? What do you mean not invited? That's my corn out there. You guys are guests in my corn. I've done everything that I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying, what's in it for me? Is that why you did this for you? Ray Kinsella just wanted to feel significant. The disciples are searching for significance too. They're just looking for it in the wrong place. I had a friend of mine a couple years ago who was talking about this passage, and uh, very comically, he said, you know, I don't think we have to use a lot of imagination, maybe some sanctified imagination, to know what's going on behind the scenes in the conversation between James and John before they approached Jesus. It probably went something like this. Hey, James. Yeah, bro. What's up? Have you noticed how, how Jesus is talking a lot about the kingdom yeah, you know, I, I've noticed that, too. He's also been talking a lot about his death. Like, what do you think that's all about? Uh, it's probably just one of his parables, you know. Um, well, he's been talking about the kingdom. Did you hear what he said just a chapter ago in Matthew 19, uh, where, where he said that those that follow him are going to sit on 12 thrones? Yeah, you know, I, I caught that, too. He goes, well... I, I was sitting over here doing some math. Now, now, hear this. There's a lot of followers of Jesus, right? But there's 12 of us. You know what that means? Dude, one throne each. Hashtag blessed. This is going to be awesome. We got to go talk to Jesus about this. Okay, but, but hold on. Peter's always going to Jesus and saying some pretty wild things and putting his foot in his mouth and looking really dumb I mean, this is Passover week coming up. It's probably going to be, be a big week. Don't know what's going to happen. But I don't want to look like that terrible disciple. What do we do? I know. Let's get mom to do it. Right? If she goes to Jesus, she'll sound really, really humble. But they, they have done everything they've been asked to do, right? They have followed Jesus from the very beginning. They haven't understood it all. That's very plain. But they've done it, and now they want to know what's in it for them. Even though it's their mom asking Jesus uh, this, this question, Jesus knows it, it comes from them. He actually turns to them and says, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're talking about. Can you drink the cup that I'm to drink? And he's talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath to pay the penalty for their sin. 
But they're ignorant and they don't understand that. So they say, yeah, 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 we, we totally can do that. We're able. It just goes to show you that there's a certain level of myth-making in our own search for significance and, and for greatness. That either you believe that you've already done what is required to be considered great or that you think you can do what is needed to be great or that you're someone who just always feels kind of slighted and you think, you know, I've been through enough hardship. Now it's, it's my turn. It's my time in the sun. And on top of all that, behind all of that is this feeling that we want to be remembered as significant people. There's even a sense that we want the memory of us and the memory of what we do to reach beyond death. The author Neil Gaiman, he, he was writing, he said, you know, when you die, they can take your body and turn you into diamonds now. He said, that's how I want to be remembered. I just want to shine. I don't know if you read in the news this week, uh, President Trump, it was reported that President Trump uh, recently took a trip to Mount Vernon, and he was confused as to why George Washington uh, wouldn't have renamed his ancestral home after himself. He said, all the great people do that. I mean, if you don't put your name on it, then no one's going to remember you. But the reality is that people are going to forget you no matter what you do. Like, there... I bet you that probably not one time today or this week or maybe, dare I say, in your lifetime that you have um, thought about the massive impact on modern society that Nicholas August Otto has made. Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? He invented the gasoline-powered internal combustion engine that runs your car. But he's, he's forgotten the point is that how we believe that significance is achieved is through, uh, through what we do. We, we want to leave an indelible impression through what we do. We, we live in a meritocracy. And so how we think that greatness and significance is achieved is by going to the right school and majoring in the right discipline and uh, getting the right kind of job and marrying the right girl or guy and then buying the right home in the right neighborhood and raising the right kinds of kids and feed them the right kinds of foods and then sending them to the right schools and getting them involved in the right kinds of extracurricular activities. But in a meritocracy, you're always worried about keeping up appearances. You're always worried about your own image and your reputation. Where do I stand in other people's eyes? How do I stack up? Against them? How do I stack up against that other employee? How do I stack up against that other boss? How do I stack up against those other moms? Some research was done, I think within the last couple of years, um, looking into the lives of the ultra rich, which I guess you have to have net assets above $50 million, which I'd take half of that, you know, gladly. Um, but they said that, that those that lived in, um, in that kind of community, in that kind of neighborhood where you, you were living in the same neighborhood as other people that had more than $50 million, uh, that, that your wealth didn't feel as significant because you're all on the same playing field, right? Everyone has the same kind of nice cars and has the same kind of resume and the same square footage of house. You live on the same fancy street. You're, you don't feel as significant. 
Um, and, it, and they said that, that actually those that, that are in this ultra-rich um, uh, segment of society, they do more than any other people group in society to, to make more money. Because it's all about keeping up appearances. I, I have to get on top, and then once I'm on top, I have to remain on top. I have to be significant. This is why Major League Baseball players that were already going to the Hall of Fame, like Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez, started to take steroids. This is why wealthy celebrities, um, to get their kids into college, uh, who had all the money in the world, why they were involved in a college admissions scheme. Because it's all about keeping up appearances, that you have to be on top and you have to stay there. The, the thing is, that what, the things that really matter in our lives, it can be kind of hard to measure. Like, how do you measure being a good parent? So what you end up doing is you have to start making up stuff to see how you stack up against others so that you feel more significant than they do. Because there's always going to be someone else that's prettier. There's always going to be someone else that's more talented. There's always going to be someone else who has more money than you do and has a better job. And so you have to find something that makes you feel somehow above them or more than them, more important than them. Like, you know what, you may be pretty and you may be super talented and super rich, but at least I voted for the right person. But Jesus says this is what the Gentiles do, right? They lord it over other people. When the disciples heard what James and John were asking Jesus, they in their hearts were lording it over them too. It says that they became indignant. They weren't angry at them because they asked the question, because they beat them to the punch. But they were indignant. They were angry at them because they thought, how on earth do you think that you are better suited and more qualified to sit close to Jesus in his kingdom than me? How dare you? And it doesn't stop there. The disciples and all of his followers go out from Jericho. They make their way towards Jerusalem where Jesus is going to make his triumphal entry. And you see more of this. You, you have two blind men on the road that cry out to Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And his disciples, his followers, they try to silence them. Hush, y'all be quiet. Right? Jesus is probably teaching as he goes. But there's a large crowd with him, and these two men are crying out so loud that they're disrupting his teaching. Y'all be quiet. He's, he's talking to me. They're saying, I'm more important than you. I'm more important than you. When I cut somebody off in traffic, I'm saying, I'm more important than you. Like, I'm going places you're obviously not, so get out of my way. Um, when my son wants to play with me and get my attention, and it's the back nine of the final round of the Masters, like it was this morning, um, and I don't pay attention to him, I'm saying I'm more important than you. Because this is my weekend, my favorite sports weekend, right? My favorite sports Sunday the highlight of my year, and I've worked hard, and I've earned a right to sit down and relax and to watch this alone. When I've lived next door to people for years, and I don't really know them, I'm saying I'm more important than they are. 
Because I've got lots of obligations and I've got a lot of people vying for my time. And, you know, I, I just can't be bothered. And I think that I've earned the right to not have to take the time and energy to get to know them. You know, um, Jesus always challenges our preconceived notion of how we think life works. And he does so here. Um, we search for significance, um, but there's only one place where we find real significance. Look, look back at, at verse 26. Jesus has just said that the Gentiles lord, lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. And then he says this, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This passage goes hand in hand with what Jesus just talked about in the very beginning of Matthew 20. He gave this parable that we looked at a few months ago uh, about the laborers in the vineyard, uh, where you have some labor starting in the early morning, some starting in the middle of the day, and some starting at the very end of the day when the work is almost finished. And when the work is completed, their master gives them all the same wage. And Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And here he's saying that those that are great among you must be your servant. Those that are considered first among you must be your slave. The first reaction to Jesus here for me, and it's probably the same for you, is not Jesus. Man, yes, you are so wise. My first reaction is you've got to be kidding me. That makes no sense. That is not fair. I'm the one who started working early in the morning, right? Why do I get paid the same as someone who came in at the last hour? I'm the one who's been following you, right? Why do I get the same kind of blessing as someone else, right? I've worked hard to get to where I am. Why do I have to go to the bottom to serve someone else? But here's how Jesus turns our view of significance on its head. He says that the one who was on top the king has come to serve you. The son of man has come to serve. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. The son of man is Jesus' favorite description for himself, the favorite name uh, he has for himself. It's a, it's a prophetic description of the Messiah that was going to come uh, from the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, who saw a vision of one coming down from the clouds of heaven uh, like a son of man to whom all glory and honor and power and dominion was given to forever and ever. That all peoples should praise him and serve him. And Jesus is saying, that is me. I am that one whom all living things should praise and glorify and serve. But I'm coming for you. I'm coming to serve you. The king has become the servant. It, it's amazing. He, he's turning this on its head. We, we hear this in the, the hymn that we sing sometimes, And Can It Be, that he left his father's throne above, so free and infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love to bleed for Adam's helpless race. Do you remember how Jesus entered into the city on that Palm Sunday? How did he enter? He, he came in riding on the colt of a donkey. 
He didn't come in on a tank. He didn't come in on a war horse. He didn't come in on a chariot. He came riding in on the colt of a donkey, this animal that you would hook up a plow to. This small animal that you would um, put all of your heavy loads on to carry for you. And Jesus is saying, I am here. I have come. The king has come to carry your burden. To carry your burden of sin. The one who ascribed all significance to you in creating you in his image and crowning you with glory and honor and dominion and giving you purpose. The same God whom you sin against times without number and all the ways that we've looked at and talked about the past few weeks looking through the Ten Commandments. That God is coming to us and saying, I consider you so significant that I've come to bleed for you and to give my life to you as a ransom. He's a, his life is a ransom. That implies that there is someone that's a captive to be set free from. He's, he's our ransom. Which, which means without the work of Jesus, without his... His life and his death and being raised to life for us to to free us from the the bondage of sin, the judgment of sin that we should get, that we deserve. Without that, we're going to stay a captive. We're going to stay a prisoner of our sin. And there's no getting out for good behavior. Right. He. He's one who he he told James and John that that he would. Uh, that they would drink his cup, right? It's not the same cup that he was to drink, right? He was drinking the cup of God's wrath to, to pay for the full weight of sin, to atone for sins. But he says, you will drink my cup. You will drink the cup of blessing, the cup that was meant for me, a cup of honor. You will drink in my stead. I'm going to take your F and give you my A+. I'm going to take what you rightly deserve because of your sin against God, against me. I'm going to give you the benefits, the blessing of perfect righteousness and holiness and life with God. That's what I've come to do. But unless that you've been ransomed by Jesus, again, you stay a captive. Here's the point. It doesn't matter if you are a Nicholas Auguste Otto that has done great things. It doesn't matter if you are a Bill Gates type who invented something that changed the world forever and made billions of dollars and given all of your billions of dollars away to really good charities to do lots of great things in the world that are very great and are very significant in a human perspective. What Jesus is saying is that even though that may seem great in our eyes, in God's economy, if you have not been ransomed by the work of Jesus, then you are no better off than a popular death row inmate that can sneak you the most packs of smokes. And there's not a rock hammer in the world that can dig you out of Shawshank. You remain a captive. In God's kingdom, what Jesus is saying is that in God's kingdom, uh, significance is not achieved through meritocracy. It's achieved through mercy. It's his mercy. If you're not a Christian, um, that may seem like a very radical thing because we live in a culture where to get, uh, to get anywhere in this life, to, to achieve anything in our 
in our day, in our culture, that you have to do so by merit. Right? You have to have a great looking resume. And if you are a Christian, you know that, that it's all of God's mercy. But, but here's why we have to keep hearing that. is because, we again, we live in a culture where there's such a premium on merit that even acts of mercy are seen as resume items. And we can't help but be affected by that. You notice how Jesus asked the same question of the disciples' mother as he does the, the blind men? He says, what, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? For the disciples, they want prestige. For the blind men, they want what? They want mercy. So who gets the greater blessing? Who gets the greater blessing? Is, is it the ones who have followed Jesus from the very beginning and stuck with him through thick and thin so far? <laughs> who don't always understand what he's talking about when it comes to the kingdom and those who ask kind of dumb questions every now and then? Or... or a couple of men who are jumping on the bandwagon a few days before Jesus dies because they want to be healed. Which one gets the greater blessing? Which one deserves God's mercy more? See, that's not a fair question, is it? Because you can't earn mercy. But we think we can. We, in the life that we lead, we, we have this notion as we're measuring our lives against one another that that those who have paid the cost of price, those that have camped out in line for the tickets to the show, get the better seats. And that's not how God's kingdom works. The laborers in the vineyard get the same wages. The very beginning of the Bible in the book of Exodus, God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's up to the Lord. But here's what we know. Here's what Jesus encourages us with. This is the good news. Is that he came to serve us. He came to ransom us. He came to pour out his mercy on people like us that don't deserve it. That anything that we have done, it doesn't deserve and can never deserve God's mercy. The things that we have done simply demand God's mercy. It requires God's mercy. That's how far gone we are. But he did. He came to serve us. God, this may sound a little strange, but um, we typically get this backwards. We typically say, God loves me because Jesus died for me. But that's actually not the biblical message. The biblical message is Jesus died for you because God loves you. And that means that you're significant. So how do we start to, to get this into daily life? How do we start to think about significance in uh, the, the way that Jesus thinks about it? Well, just a, a couple things. If you understand that your significance comes solely from the love and pursuing mercy of God, then it, it does a couple things. First, it begins to change. It begins to unburden you from this temptation to stack yourself up against other people. From saying, how do I measure up? How can I keep up appearances with all these other people around me? Because here, here's the reality. If the God of the universe has found you so significant that he came down and bled for you, died for you to give his life for you so that you would have eternal life with God and experience blessing and glory forever and ever and ever. If he finds you that significant, what does it matter what anybody else thinks about you for good or for ill? 
It shouldn't. The second thing is this, is that it encourages you to begin to reflect the love and mercy of God to others. Because you you see that they are every bit as desperate as you are for his love and mercy. Every bit as desperate. And what happens is, is you start to realize is that the quality of your attachments are far more important than the quality of your achievements. Because if we spend a life where we're always trying to keep up appearances, where we're always trying to jockey for position, right, trying to stack up against other people, what we end up doing is living cold, distant, and separate lives from others. And what we communicate is that, that God is cold and distant and separate. But competitors can become friends when you are humbled by the character of a merciful and loving God. So what do we do? We, we come close to others. We, we pursue others. And as we do that, we are saying, you are valued. You are unique. You are significant. Because I know a God. I know a Savior in Jesus who came for people like us. Not because we deserved it, but because he is merciful. He wants to be merciful to you. Let me pray for us. Thank you.